Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and tonight's episode, Portrait of Jocelyn, features a painting of a woman that inspires intense emotion in at least two of its viewers. The idea of portraits that hold sinister secrets or cause unsettling reactions is nothing new, of course. You have the walking portrait of Ricardo in Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, the granddaddy of Gothic novels. And of course, there's the painting that ages and takes on the evil of its owner in the picture of Dorian Gray. And the idea of someone being obsessed or falling in love with a figure in a piece of art goes all the way back at least to the Greek myth, in which the artist Pygmalion falls in love with his own sculpture and prays to Aphrodite for her to bring the sculpture to life. But there's no better example of the power of a portrait in these sort of noir stories that Alfred Hitchcock Presents represents than Otto Preminger's 1944 film Laura, in which a woman is killed by a shotgun blast to the face in Laura Hunt's apartment and is believed to be Laura Hunt. There is a large portrait of Laura over the mantelpiece in her apartment, and police detective Mark McPherson, played by Dana Andrews, becomes obsessed with the portrait. Have you sublet this apartment? You're here often enough to pay rent. Any objections? Yes. I object to you prying into Laura's letters, especially those for me. Why? Yours are the best in the bunch. Thanks. But I didn't write them to you. Haven't you any sense of privacy? Murder victims have no claim to privacy. Have detectives who buy portraits of murder victims a claim to privacy? Lancaster Corey told me that you've already put in a bid for it. That's none of your business. McPherson, did it ever strike you that you're acting very strangely? It's a wonder you don't come here like a suitor with roses and a box of candy. Drugstore candy, of course. Have you ever dreamed of Laura as your wife? By your side at the policeman's ball or in the bleachers? Or listening to the heroic story of how you got a silver shin bone from a gun battle with a gangster? I see you have. Why don't you go home? I'm busy. Perhaps we can come to terms now. You want the portrait? Perfectly understandable. I want my possessions, my bars, my clock and my screen. Also perfectly understandable. Now, if you... Get going. You better watch out, McPherson, or you'll end up at a psychiatric ward. I don't think they've ever had a patient who fell in love with a corpse. I won't spoil the rest of that film, which is worth seeing, but I will spoil part of Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, which also has a slight connection to a portrait. In that film, a young woman whose first name is never mentioned, played by Joan Fontaine, becomes the second wife of Maxim de Winter, whose first wife, Rebecca, looms over her in the massive mansion called Manderley. Joan's character feels intimidated by the presence of the deceased Rebecca, personified in her housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers. She tries to assert some claim to the position of Mrs. De Winter by having a costume ball, and Mrs. Danvers leads her to a painting in the house of a woman in a long gown. This one, for instance might have been designed for you. I'm sure you could have it copied. I've heard Mr. De Winter say that this is his favorite of all the paintings. It's Lady Caroline De Winter, one of his ancestors. Oh, well, well, well that's a splendid idea, Mrs. Danvers. I'm, I'm very grateful. However, 
when Joan's character shows up at her costume ball dressed in a version of that gown, Maxim reacts with anger and orders her to take it off immediately. I watched you go down, just as I watched her a year ago. Even in the same dress, you couldn't compare. You knew it. You knew that she wore it, and yet you deliberately suggested I wear it. Why do you hate me? What have I done to you that you should ever hate me so? You tried to take her place. You let him marry you. I've seen his face, his eyes. Well, the same as those first weeks after she died. I used to listen to him, walking up and down, up and down, all night long, night after night, thinking of her, suffering torture because he'd lost her. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. You thought you could be Mrs. DeWinter, live in her house, walk in her steps, take the things that were hers, but she's too strong for you. You can't fight her. No one ever got the better of her. Never, never. She was beaten in the end, but it wasn't a man, it wasn't a woman. It was the sea. The secret here, of course, is not that Maxim hates his second wife in comparison to Rebecca, but that Maxim hated Rebecca and that her death does not take place in the sea, but when she falls in the midst of a heated argument between the two of them. This will all sound pretty familiar by the time we get to the end of this episode. Another noir tale with a mysterious painting of a woman is the March 2nd, 1944 episode of the Suspense radio program entitled Portrait Without a Face. Good evening. The gallery's still open for a few minutes, isn't it? Well, I'm sorry, Miss. It's just closing up now. Oh, you can't be. I've come all the way from Boston and I... Well, I... I'm sorry, Miss. We're half an hour past closing. Now we open again at 11 tomorrow. 11? But I can't possibly wait over... Do you think five dollars would... No, miss. I could even go as high as ten. No, miss. I could even go as high no, as... No, miss. Oh, but there's a picture on exhibit that I must see. I'd stay only a moment. I must see it, really. It's called... I know, miss. It's called Portrait Without a Face. Half of New York was in to see it today. The other half will be in tomorrow. And if you'll excuse me now... Wait a moment, please. Have... Have you seen the picture? Me? What did I be doing looking at pictures? Wasted time. But I can tell you this. Sure got people talking. One of those critics was in here this morning and you... Hey, hold on, miss. Maybe you can't go in after all. You see that man coming down from Madison Avenue? That's Paul DeGel, the artist who painted the picture. And maybe if you had asked him... I... DeGel? Oh, no. No, thank you. I've changed my mind. I'll... I'll come back some other time. Taxi! All of these stories head off in different directions than our episode tonight. But there is one film that, while lacking a portrait, still follows a very similar course. We'll get to that a little bit later. For now, here's Hitch. In the spirit of our theme, he is painting. He has a canvas on an easel in front of him, and he is holding a palette in his left hand while he holds out the thumb of his right hand so that when we first come to him, the thumb takes up most of the screen. We see his face behind. So why exactly do painters hold up their thumbs when they're painting? This is Kathleen Grace from Quora.com. Artists hold up their thumbs, two fingers, and a pencil paintbrush to use as a sighting tool. Using the thumb or fingers or other implements helps gauge size, positioning, proportions, line, direction of line, angles to measure, and more. It is used to help us see and observe more accurately. So in that spirit, Hitch is apparently ready to paint a portrait of us. Now the camera pulls back, and Hitch addresses us. 
What an extraordinary thumb. It completely obscures the subject I'm painting. I used to paint along the roadside, but I had to quit. Motorists insisted on giving me rides. Hold that pose. Remain perfectly still for the next half hour. Care to see my handiwork? I have several canvases ready. He holds up a canvas that says, post no bills. A sign, for those that don't know, that forbids any posting of advertisements on that spot. Then he holds up a canvas that says, Kilroy was here. As Wikipedia puts it, Kilroy was here is an American symbol that became popular during World War II, typically seen in graffiti. Its origin is debated, but the phrase and the distinctive accompanying doodle became associated with GIs in the 1940s. A bald-headed man, sometimes depicted as having a few hairs, with a prominent nose peeking over a wall, with his fingers clutching the wall. The outrageousness of the graffiti was not so much what it said, but where it turned up. It is not known if there was an actual person named Kilroy who inspired the graffiti, although there have been claims over the years. Or, if you like something more exotic. Now he holds up a sign that says, Pas de stationnement. It's French. Specifically, it's French for no parking. And, of course... And his last canvas says, Please stand by. The phrase used in television when there are technical difficulties. So here's Portrait of Jocelyn, first broadcast on April 8, 1956, starring Philip Abbott, Nancy Gates, and John Barragray. Teleplay by Harold Swanton, based on a story by Edgar Marvin, and directed by Robert Stevens. We have seen half of these people before. There are two actors and one writer that we have not seen before. And if we factor in the three actors we will see in smaller roles, we still have two actors and one writer that we have not seen before. So let's take a quick look at the three in the credits that we have seen before. First, I have to start with some sad news. When we last saw Nancy Gates, it was episode six, Salvage. I released that in January of 2019, and at that time, Nancy Gates was still alive. But unfortunately, she died only a couple of months later, at the age of 93. This is Nancy's second and last episode. Harold Swanton has 10 episodes altogether, plus one episode of The Alfred Hitchcock Hour. We have seen his work previously in Premonition and The Long Shot, but he takes a bit of a break from Alfred Hitchcock Presents after this one. His next is Coyote Moon, episode four of season five. As for Robert Stevens, this is his 10th episode after Premonition, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Cheney Vase, You Got to Have Luck, The Older Sister, Shopping for Death, Place of Shadows, and The Perfect Murder. He has 34 more Alfred Hitchcock Presents and five Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. His next is Never Again, episode 30. Now let's get started. We have another one of those episodes where the sound begins before the picture fades up from black. This is an old Robert Stevens trick that he used with the train in place of shadows and the child singing 
and the older sister and the police siren in You Got to Have Luck. This time, it sounds like the running of a newspaper printing press. But it's actually someone knocking at a door, specifically at the door of the Harrison Gallery of Fine Arts. A man answers the door and finds two very excited-looking young people. I'm sorry, sir, but we're closed. Now, wait a minute. I was in this morning. I spoke to Mr. Harrison about a painting, made a payment on it. I'm Mark Halliday. This is Mrs. Halliday. How do you How do? How do you do? I am sorry, sir, no, but I have to brought come back. Mrs. Halliday all the way downtown just to make sure she likes it. Oh, please. It's our anniversary. First anniversary. It's a little present for her. It won't be the same tomorrow, don't you see? Please? Two things here. First of all, Philip Abbott's character is named Mark Halliday, the same as Robert Cummings' character in Dial M for Murder. Tony, Mark. Oh, Mark, this is Inspector Hubbard. Inspector, this is Mark Halliday. He was with me last night. How do you do, Inspector? Now, Mr. Halliday, as you were with Mr. Wendis last night, you may be able to help us here. Now, uh, did you notice what time it was he went to the phone? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, it was just three minutes after 11. Well, how did you come to notice that? Well, Mr. Wendis's watch had stopped, and some of us compared times. Oh, thank you, sir. You see, it was when Mrs. Wendis came in here to answer his call that she was attacked. Did you phone Margot before or after you phoned your boss? Tony, I know what I wanted to ask you. Why did you telephone me last night? Now, just one moment, uh, before I lose the thread of this. It's hard to imagine that this would be a coincidence. In Dial M for Murder, Tony, played by Ray Milland, plans to murder his wife Margot, played by Grace Kelly, partly because he discovers she is having an affair. When we get to the end of this episode, we'll find a similar situation. But whereas in Dial M for Murder, Mark Halliday is the lover, here in Portrait of Jocelyn, Mark Halliday is the husband. If the name rings any bells with the audience, since the movie only came out two years before, it may be working as a case of misdirection to make you think that Mark Halliday must be an innocent victim in all this rather than a perpetrator in all this. Secondly, the pie lady points out that Nancy Gates, who plays Mark Halliday's wife of one year, whom we later learn is named Debbie, begins this episode, aside from the how do you do, with the word please, exactly how she began her last episode Salvage. Please. Sorry, miss, but we don't serve unescorted ladies at the bar. I want to talk to Mr. Henry. It's important. Please. In both cases, by beginning this way, Nancy's characters put themselves in a submissive position. In Salvage, she is literally begging for her life. Here, we'll find that she, like Joan Fontaine and Rebecca, is eventually begging for her marriage against the memory of a first wife that she feels she can't measure up to. But not yet. At the moment, she's very happy, and the gallery employee gives in and lets them in to show them the picture that Mark has bought. See, it was uh, number uh, 128. So, would you mind getting it for us, please? Yes, sir. The gallery employee is played by Olan Soulet. We last saw Olan as the chemist in our Cooks a Treasure episode number eight. He has six total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and two Alfred Hitchcock Hours. His next is Little White Frock, episode 39 of season three. So while Olan goes to get the painting, Mark and Debbie are carefree. 
Mark puts his hat on a bust nearby, perhaps prefiguring the bust we will find later on in the episode. Debbie picks the hat up off the bust and puts it back on Mark's head. He rests his arm on the head of another bust, and they banter. 128. What a fine, round, high-sounding name to hang over our mantle. Think so? Yep. What did your husband give you for your first anniversary, Mrs. Halliday? A 128 to hang over my mantle. Tell me, darling, what is it? Well... No, let me guess. All right, go ahead. Van Gogh's ear. Uh, no. All right, I give up. Oh, Mark, I don't care what it is. Just as long as you picked it out. They kiss and decide to celebrate at home tonight. At that, Mark gives her an arched eyebrow. We know what he's thinking. And then he drifts away, so his back is turned when Olan shows up with the painting. Debbie is the one that sees it, and she stops dead. Because it turns out she does care what she's getting in this painting after all. There's a nice shot of the frame of the painting coming into view of the television picture frame. We can't see what's on it, but it clearly says 128 on the back, so we know it's the right one. All we can see of Olan is his thumb. Earlier, a shadow fell over Debbie's left arm from the bust she was standing by. Now, it almost feels like that shadow has come over her because of the painting. And it's appropriate that the shadow comes from a bust, as we'll see later on. As I said, Mark has turned away. When Debbie calls out, he turns and also sees the painting. The camera pulls back to show Olan, but we still don't see the painting. What we do see are their reactions. We'll open a bottle of champagne, and we'll hang 128 of... Mark! I said 128. You made a mistake. No, this is it, sir. Well, that's not the painting I saw this morning. It's 128. See for yourself. I don't see the joke, Mark. Debbie, wait a minute. No, let me... Debbie, I never saw that painting before in my life. There must be some explanation. Who put you up to that? Put me up to what? Where did you get that? Back there. Well, how'd I get back there? I don't know, sir. You'll have to ask Mr. Harrison. Would you like to leave it here, sir? I'll have Mr. Harrison call you. No. I'll take it with me. We still don't know what's going on. We still haven't seen the painting. But we get the pie lady's musical sting. So it must be pretty important. Debbie has already walked out of the gallery. And Mark soon follows with the painting. I hope he paid for that painting particularly since it apparently isn't even the painting he picked out. Well, he did say he made a payment on it. I spoke to Mr. Harrison about a painting, made a payment on it. In any event, we crossfade to an office where we see our old friend Raymond Bailey. He plays Jeff, the brother of Mark's first wife, Jocelyn. Mark is showing him the painting, and now we know that it might be a portrait of Jocelyn, not only because of the title, but because they talk about it but we still haven't seen the painting. Actually, though, to be precise, we can see the painting as Mark is walking out of the gallery door if we pause the image at just the right time, something they weren't able to do back in 1956. But it's interesting, isn't it, that even though we're not supposed to see the painting until later, they do use the actual painting in that scene. 
and it is the portrait of a woman, which prompts Mark to ask Jeff. Is it Jocelyn? I don't know, Mark. Well, you ought to know your own sister. Mm, you know better than I do. You were married to him. Well, it certainly looks like Jocelyn. Of course, she could have a double. Now, let's see, when was it she disappeared? April four years ago, wasn't it? Five. Five years ago last month. I had hoped you'd be over it by now. <laughs> I thought I was. There's some nice exposition in there presented rather painlessly to us. But it's odd, isn't it, that Jocelyn's brother doesn't know how many years ago it was that she disappeared? This could be Jeff playing things a little bit too coyly. And why should Jeff be coy about something like this? Well, it all has to do with the end of the episode. So maybe I'll stop pointing these things out and circle back around to them after we've gotten through the entire episode. Right now, allow me to mention that Raymond Bailey is in 10 total Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. This is his third after Breakdown and The Case of Mr. Pelham, both directed by Hitchcock. His next is The Three Dreams of Mr. Finlater, episode 30 of season two. But he's not in the show. He's in Hitchcock's intro and outro, playing Hitch's psychiatrist, just as he played a psychiatrist in the last episode in which we saw him, the case of Mr. Pelham. Here, he is not a psychiatrist, as far as we know, and one of the reasons why he seems so casual about Jocelyn being gone four or five years is that he apparently has news of her more recent than that. Mark doesn't, however, and he comments on the fact that she looks older in the portrait than when he last saw her. A nice touch by whomever has painted that portrait. It's a little older than I remember. It shows around the eyes. We're all a little older, Mark. Mm. Hey, look. Here are the initials and the date. September 19... That was three years ago. Well, it must have been done before she went to Europe. Oh, I don't know, Wait a Mark. minute. What do you mean, Europe? Oh, forget it. What do you mean? I wasn't going to mention it. Doesn't make any difference now, I guess. I had a letter from her. When? A couple of years ago, she was in Switzerland. Where is it? I burned it. What'd you do that for? I didn't want you to know, Mark. You divorced her for desertion. She wasn't the right person for you, and you'd found someone who was, Debbie. So I kept it quiet. Where in Switzerland was she? San Moritz. What was she doing there? Well, I wish this hadn't come up, Mark. Never mind that. Did she say anything about me? No. Apparently, there was someone else. She doesn't love you, Mark. She never did. Ouch. That's blunt. And how does Mark react to that? As the music swells and the camera moves in on him, Mark says, I guess you're right. She never did. He holds the portrait up in one hand and the camera moves from his face down to the portrait and we finally get a nice close-up of the portrait of Jocelyn. It is the portrait of a woman with blondish hair, seated in profile, except that her head is turned slightly. Her eyes are all the way over to the left, as if looking at the artist. She's wearing pearls, and she has a disdainful pout on her face. Then we get a dissolve to the same portrait, a little bit farther away now, 
sitting on the mantelpiece at Debbie and Mark's home. The camera then pans across the room to Debbie, who is staring at the portrait. It's clearly not the same shot. The dissolve is obvious. The painting moves from close up to farther away. And yet, because of its composition, it gives us a feeling of continuity, as if we're still in the same room at the same time as when Mark was looking at the painting in Jeff's office. Now, as I said, it is Debbie who is looking at it. Mark enters the room, ready for dinner, behind her. So once again, we have a shot as we did in the gallery, with Debbie close up looking at the painting, and Mark behind. In the gallery, you'll recall, there was a bust that cast a shadow over part of Debbie's arm. Here, Jack Seabrook says, At home, Debbie has placed the portrait on the mantle to symbolize the way that Jocelyn has cast a shadow over their marriage. In fact, Debbie says as much when Mark notices that she's put the painting up over the mantle. What's that doing there? I thought it was very appropriate. There's no reason to hide it behind the sofa. She's been looking over my shoulder. Debbie, please. I can do without hysterics. If that's what it is, I can't help it. She's been in the house with us ever since our marriage. She's in your mind when you kiss her. Stop it! I'm sorry. Oh, oh Mark. So am I. I. I couldn't help it. In that sequence, Mark goes to take the painting down, and then he sits in a chair. The camera stays with him, forcing Debbie to come to him, and she kneels down in front of him when she says she couldn't help it, putting herself once again in a submissive position. Mark tells Debbie that Jeff claimed to get a letter from Jocelyn two years ago. Has he seen her? No, nobody's seen her. great waste. She was born to be seen. I remember the first time I saw her at the beach at Shell Harbor in the rain. That old yellow slicker thrown over her shoulders, a scarf tied around her head. Glowing, radiant. Her hair, her skin, her eyes. She didn't even look wet. Debbie's comments that she was born to be seen and she didn't even look wet will resonate with us by the end of the episode. Although, come to think of it, when I think about that she didn't even look wet line, I think I'm still thinking about Rebecca, whose body was found in the sea. In any event, Debbie does introduce us to the yellow slicker and the scarf, which we will see later in the episode. Mark stands, they hold hands, and they head to the dinner table. But the phone rings, and Mark stops to answer it. The camera stops with him. It's Jeff, and he knows the name of the artist. Clymer. C-L-Y-M-E-R. Mr. Harrison says he's an amateur painter, shows a lot of promise. He brought in the picture last week. Harrison doesn't know how it got mixed up with yours. Are you sure about that? Seems a strange coincidence, but that's what the man said. Think we should go up there and look around? I'll let you know. Thanks, Jeff. Goodbye. Yes, it does seem a strange coincidence. And it now stands between Debbie and Mark as they sit at the dinner table. We get one of those classic Robert Stevens close-ups of an object. As Debbie pours a glass of wine, the bottle huge in the foreground. And again, it's Debbie in the foreground with Mark in the background. 
as he tries to start carving a roast that looks far too big for the both of them. The pie lady points out that the roast is totally dried out. She says it's like Mark is carving a tree log with a butter knife. But Mark doesn't get too far with that carving because the subject of Jocelyn comes up again. And Debbie eventually blurts out, You shouldn't have married me, Mark. Oh, don't start that again. But it's true. She still has a hold on you. You're still in love with Shut her. Shut up! still in love with her. You, you want her back. Debbie, as far as I'm concerned, she's dead. Which is an interesting thing to say. Debbie, though, wonders if Jocelyn isn't living up at Shell Harbor, which is where Jeff has just told them that Arthur Clymer lives. And Mark decides to settle it once and for all. They're going to pack up and head up to Shell Harbor right now. So we get our first actual fade out and fade in. We've had nothing but crossfades up till now. And we fade into what is probably a matte painting of a shoreline with cliffs. The ocean is moving, the waves coming in, but everything else, the clouds, the trees, the sparse homes, appears painted, not quite real, which makes it very fitting in our story of paintings and uncertainties and unreality. Now, after that establishing shot, we fade to a real estate office the Shell Harbor Realty Company, where Harry Tyler is our real estate agent. Hotels closed, both motel people went to Florida. I found that out. I suppose you don't have anything either. How long are you gonna be here? Day or week? Well, I don't know. I got just one left. 10 a day, 60 a week, one day in advance. Good, I'll take it. Wilman Cottage. In the cove. Are you sure that's all you've got? You'll like it all right. Beautiful setting. I'll have the utilities turned on right away. Are you positive there's nothing else available? That's the only place in town, mister. Nice, comfortable place, too. You can take it from me. The Wilman Cottage is one I of know the all about the Wilman Cottage. I lived there five years ago. Harry Tyler is a familiar face. This is his fourth appearance after Premonition and So Died Ryubashinska and Place of Shadows. He's in 11 total episodes. His next is Decoy, episode number 37. So Mark and Debbie move into the Wilman Cottage. All of the furniture is covered with sheets and the electricity is not yet turned on. But the drive up to Shell Harbor seems to have done Debbie some good. After being submissive for the first half of the episode, she finally decides to take the bull by the horns. She wants to meet this artist. She wants answers. And she confronts Mark. Did you ask the real estate man about Mr. Clymer? No, I didn't. Why not? Because I thought it was more important to have a roof over our heads. It's getting late, and this is the last place in town. You don't have to take my head off. Mark, on the other hand, is clearly getting defensive and slightly rattled. Things get stranger when Debbie finds a vase filled with flowers and they're fresh. Really? Lily of the Valley. Aren't they Jocelyn's favorite flowers? Mm. 
then she goes into the closet. Mark? How did she do it, I wonder? Throw an old sticker over her shoulders and a scarf over her head. It looked like a magazine cover. Take those off. How long since you've stayed here with her? These can't be hers. They are hers. I can see her in them now. Are you trying to tell me they've been hanging in the closet for five years? She's been staying here, Mark. Oh. She's in this town right now. That's ridiculous. Oh, Mark. Mark, darling, stop trying to protect her. Why don't you face it? What she did to you isn't enough. Now she's going to ruin us, too. You know that's nonsense. You know it's true. It isn't true. I don't believe she's here. I feel kind of foolish running around town asking people. <gasps> He lifts one of the sheets off the furniture. It's her, isn't it? It's not until Debbie says it's her, isn't it, that we see what they're looking at. A bust of Jocelyn. And again, like the wine bottle, it's large in the foreground. Mark stoops down to take a closer look at it. And he and the bust of Jocelyn fill the screen. The bust, like the painting, is in profile until Mark turns it to face him. He seems to look it in the eye, and he touches it on its cheek, as if caressing it. And let's not forget that during this whole sequence, the pie lady's sting has taken place again. That's twice in one episode, so that's pretty big doings indeed. This, I think, is where the commercial came in. And when we come back, we get the sound of a door opening before we get any video yet. Just like we got the sound of a door being knocked upon at the beginning of the episode without any video yet. This time it's Mark opening a door to someone whom we only see from behind. A tall man who introduces himself as Arthur Clymer. He comes in and we get a quick cut to see him from the front for the first time. And he is played by our other lead actor, John Barragray. Clymer tells him that he left some things in that house that he's come to pick up. Primarily the bust he made of Jocelyn. That's when Debbie takes charge. This is my first attempt at sculpture. When did you do this? A couple of months ago. I was living here at the time, thanks to the Wilmans. It's a nice piece of work. Thank you. Do you use a model for that? Yes, my wife. Is her name Jocelyn? Why, yes. You know her? I did once. Well, you must come and see us. Just a minute. Hmm? Don't these belong to her? They look familiar. I didn't realize she... Mark, why don't you walk home with Mr. Clymer and carry these for him? Oh, Nonsense. I can take I'm them. I'm sure Mark would be happy to, wouldn't you, Mark? Oh, not just now, Debbie. Some other time. It, it isn't far. I said not now. Here. Let me take them. Come see us when you feel up to it, Halliday. Night. thing I've ever seen you do. We never do learn what Mark's previous relationship was with Debbie when Jocelyn was around, but we have had references to Debbie knowing Jocelyn. These hints may imply that Debbie is in some way involved in this whole mystery with Jocelyn, but they're all red herrings. 
The most important thing here is that this is the last we see of Debbie in the episode. And that's too bad, because we leave her at a moment where she has called her husband a coward. More on that a little bit later. Instead, let's move ahead to Mark showing up at Arthur Clymer's cottage, right on the cliffs overlooking the ocean. Another knock on the door. Climber is inside at a table, his bust of Jocelyn in the foreground, in a position of importance. He apparently has been drinking, and when he lets Mark in, he appears to be quite drunk. If he's not drunk, he sure seems like it as he walks over to answer the door. So that's to fool us, the audience, not to fool Mark who hasn't come in yet. Once Mark is in, Clymer sits down next to a window through which we can see the ocean breaking on the shore. This is a process shot, a shot incorporating film, that is the ocean, not actually there when they're filming the rest of the scene. And Jack Seabrook says that this is another indication of Robert Stevens' style. Mark gets right to the point. He wants to see Jocelyn. Where is she? Just like the rest of the Manja Halliday. Took one look at the statue, decided you had to see the original. Oh, look, Clamor. Don't apologize. You're no different from the rest of them. You want to see her, don't you? Okay. Jocelyn. Jocelyn. We have company. Jocelyn, darling, come on down for a minute, huh? <laughs> you thought she'd come down these stairs, didn't you? Did Mark think she was going to come down those stairs? Did we think she was going to come down those stairs? Yeah, I think we possibly think she's going to come down those stairs. But she doesn't. Clymer, meanwhile, sits down on the stairs, and Mark moves to stand over him putting himself in the dominant position. Clymer foists his glass of wine on him and drinks from the bottle. When things get heated, Clymer throws the bottle and it breaks. So Clymer appears to be the one who is ready to crack. I asked you where she was. I don't know. I don't want to know. A little cheat. There's that broken wine bottle. At that... Mark stoops down until he puts himself on an even plane with Clymer. Clymer stands up, and he now, because he's taller than Mark, has the dominant position. In this ensuing scene, they go back and forth. Clymer sits in a chair. Mark towers over him. Clymer starts to get up. Mark pushes him back down in the chair. Until finally, Clymer tells him they need to go outside, and he stands up, taller again, dominant again. Here's the sequence. I'm getting tired of this climber. What happened to Jocelyn? She's gone. Where is she? I told you I don't know. You said something about letters. Where are they? <laughs> You're lying, climber. Where is she? All right. All right. You want to know where she is? I'll tell you. She's dead. 
How did she die? How does one die? That's an interesting question. <laughs> Someday, when the breath leaves the body, there, there's death. But it's also true we live suspended in each other's minds. So perhaps there is no death. What happened to Jocelyn? That's a complicated story, and it's getting late. Some other time. Right now. She was such a thrilling woman. You've seen her face. To kiss that face. To have her always by your side. To know she was mine, to love, to kiss, to hold. You're never mine completely. Jocelyn can never belong to anybody but herself. No one, no man on earth could possess her, really. Where is she? I'll show you. I'll show you. Outside. I like the line about living suspended in each other's minds. Jocelyn is certainly living suspended in Mark's mind. And actually, Jocelyn is living suspended in the audience's mind. We've heard all about her. We've never seen her. She's not dead to us. At least not yet. Clymer takes Mark outside. Mark has become all of a sudden rather meek and submissive. And Clymer leads him to a spot with a statue of an angel. It's back to us. Once again, large in the foreground. And when Clymer gives his confession... He moves up and becomes large in the foreground, too. I can't take it anymore. What do you mean? I'm tired of carrying it around. I have to tell someone. Jocelyn. Jocelyn. I had to get away from her. Couldn't take it anymore. I left her in New York and came up here. Took the cottage alone for a couple of weeks. Alone. As if I could ever live without her. One night she came up. Didn't tell anybody she was coming, least of all me. I heard the door open, looked up, there she was. No, you didn't, you're lying. There was another man, always another man. I couldn't take it anymore. I don't remember what happened. She was there, talking to me, laughing at me, telling me she wanted a divorce. The next thing I remember, she was lying at my feet. But then Mark moves up and joins the foreground as well, just in time for his confession. That's what happened. But you weren't there. No one was there but Jocelyn and me. How do you know I killed her? They end up grappling, rolling a little bit down a hill. Mark ends up on top, and he puts his hands around Clymer's neck. But then a gun enters the frame, pointed at Mark's head. Jack Seabrook says, There is a tricky bit of work that depends on the confines of the television screen to be effective. When Mark and Arthur are struggling on the ground, and suddenly a hand holding a gun appears from off-screen to point the weapon at Mark's head. In reality, it would be obvious that Jeff was coming up beside the men, but the rectangle of the TV screen allows the director to exclude the third person's body until he is ready to include only his hand with the gun, adding to the suddenness and surprise. And yes, the man holding the gun is Jeff. How did he know? How did he know? We didn't know. We had to guess. I told him how I thought it happened, Mark. With five years under the bridge and no witnesses, we had to resort to psychology. So maybe Jeff is a psychiatrist after all. I'm sorry, Halliday. It was a brutal thing to do to you. We had to do it. Who are you? My name's Iverson, Detective Inspector Homicide. 
And you made the painting and the sculptor and arranged for the cottage. Yes. And she isn't buried over there. No. She was found where you buried her. There was a landslide there about a month ago. A piece of the cliff slumped off. Fisherman found her. As Debbie said, she was born to be seen. And she may not have looked wet in the rain, but it was Fisherman who found her. When the laboratory reported who it was, we... Well, we knew you did it. But we had to have proof. They slapped some handcuffs on him. But then Mark has one last question. Did Debbie know? No. That's something anyway. She was right. I never should have married her. There never could be anybody like Jocelyn. This episode is a prime example of why it never pays to read summaries. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVD collection has little blurbs that you can read before you watch the episode. This is what this one says. Having murdered his first wife, Jocelyn, five years ago... Yes, that's how it begins. Having murdered his first wife, Jocelyn, five years ago, the newly remarried Mark Halliday is shocked when he discovers a painting that resembles his deceased spouse. Learning who the artist is, Halliday questions the painter, who contends that Jocelyn posed for the portrait and is still alive. Well, thanks so much for that DVD collection. This is an episode where it pays to have a second viewing, to find out exactly how this works, and if it works. But first, let's look at those two actors that we kept till the very end, Philip Abbott and John Barragray. Philip Abbott was born Philip Abbott Alexander in Lincoln, Nebraska. He served in World War II as a B-24 bomber pilot, and he was awarded an Air Medal and three Oak Leaf Clusters. He studied at Fordham University and the Pasadena Playhouse. He made his Broadway debut in 1948, and in the early 60s was a co-founder of Theater West, a Los Angeles stage company. So his emphasis was in theater, overshadowing his work on the screen. But Rotten Tomatoes says that, far from being completely unmemorable in films, Abbott had at least two praiseworthy screen characterizations to his credit, Nervous Groom-to-be Arnold in The Bachelor Party, 1957, and Doctor with a Secret, George Scudder, alongside Paul Newman in Sweet Bird of Youth, 1962. Oh, hello, Doc. How'd you know I was back? Bad news travels fast. Oh, well, it's uh, very nice of you to make my homecoming so warm and so friendly. Your lady friend sounds like she's coming out of ether. Yeah, the uh, princess had a rough night. Traveling? You hooked a princess. Gee. Well, she's not using her real name. She? Well, golly, I should think not checking into hotels with you. Oh, George, George, you are the only grown man I know that still says gee and golly and gosh. Well, I'm not as sophisticated as you. Now, get me the Thomas J. Finley Hospital, please. How's Heavenly? Don't tell me she's why you came back. Hello, this is Dr. Scudder. Any calls? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you tell her the cesarean scar won't be visible to anyone except her husband. <laughs> At least I hope not. All right, I'll take care of that. I'll be there in uh, 20 minutes. Right. You sure got the bedside manner, Jordan. Well, I don't get much practice since I was made chief of staff. Rotten Tomatoes goes on to say that his many network television credits included a stint as host narrator on the experimental 1960s psychological soap opera House on High Street 
and the continuing role of Assistant Director Arthur Ward on the FBI. But he also appeared in the One Step Beyond episode, The Dead Part of the House, the Twilight Zone episodes, The Parallel, and Long Distance Call. Mother, if you can hear me, listen. You said you loved Billy. At his birthday, you, you picked him up and, and you hugged him. And you said he gave you life again. If you really love Billy, give him back. He's only five. He hasn't even started. He doesn't know anything about going to school. Our girlfriends are wearing long pants, even pitching a baseball. He's hardly been out of this room, out of this house. There's a whole world he hasn't even touched. Mother, you said Billy gave you life again. Well, now you can give him life. If you really love him, let him live. Give him back. Give him back, Ma. He's in the Outer Limits episode, The Borderland, and the B-Girl episode, entitled Zzzz. I heard the thing she screamed. And it was I in the garden. Yeah. What were you doing out there, Regina? The moonlight drew me. I was... I smelled the things that bloom in the night. Come to think of it, I did have my nosy nose poked in a flower. But you didn't transform yourself into a mammoth glowing bee. <laughs> no. He also appeared in Rich Man, Poor Man and episodes of The Hulk, Lou Grant, Quincy, and Columbo. He's the voice of Nick Fury in the Iron Man cartoon and the Spider-Man animated series from 1995. What have you done with Parker? You and I have got to talk. Just who the blazers are you? Name's Fury, Colonel Nick Fury. I call the shots around here. It can't be. The war hero? What's wrong, Jameson? Uh, 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 you look like you've seen a ghost. You're not supposed to be alive. That's what Uncle Sam wants the world to believe. But I printed your obituary. I wouldn't brag about it, mister. Bugle, obits, fury, nick. You flipped the negative of my picture. My patch is on the wrong eye. You're a real piece of work, Jameson. Now listen up. From now on, zero mistakes. Get it? What is this place? Welcome to Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division. We call it SHIELD. 
Never heard of it. Even the FBI and CIA are kept in the dark about us. S.H.I.E.L.D.'s job is to secretly try to keep the world in one piece, no matter what it takes. Rotten Tomatoes adds that he also produced, directed, and wrote nine instructional films for the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, as well as the 10-episode Lessons for Living, an in-school training project underwritten by the Disney Studios. In those, Philip Abbott plays Uncle Phil as he dispenses wisdom on a particular topic, mixing in cartoon clips from various Disney animated features, such as Alice in Wonderland, A Lesson in Appreciating Differences. important message for you. A couple of your friends from school stopped by, said to tell you everything was all set for tomorrow. Oh, no, really? Yep, that's what they said. All right, good. Want a ride? Sure. Give me your books. Ready? Yep. You act like someone's chasing you. You're all out of breath. It's this new boy in school. He moved into the house next to ours, and he wants to walk home with me after school. Oh, well, that's nice. No, none of us can stand him. He's so weird. Tomorrow, no one's going to talk to him. That's what the message was about. How long have you known him? Just since Monday. Well, that's not giving him much of a chance. And Pinocchio, a lesson in honesty. Uncle Phil? Huh? What do they do to kids who don't go to school? Well, you have to go to school. It's the law in our country. The law? Yep. You mean they could get arrested? Well, I guess you could in a way. You sound kind of worried. Well, there's this kid I know. He likes to go exploring, and... You mean he goes exploring instead of going to school? Guess you could say that. Do his parents know about this? Gosh, no, they wouldn't like it. Well, that's called playing hooky. It's also the same as lying to your parents. Oh, and one more thing. He served as the honorary mayor of Tarzana, California in the early 1970s. This is from his obituary in Playbill. When asked last year about his love of theater, Abbott told the Los Angeles Times, It has just been such an uninterrupted part of my life. It parallels everything else I've done. Most of the stuff you get paid for in television and films is such dreck. From an actor's point of view, with training and years of experience, what they call upon you to do is less than challenging. You can continue to be challenged in a place like Theater West, not only as an actor, but as a writer, a director. It's really quite remarkable. It's like a watering hole. Philip Abbott died in 1998 at the age of 73. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Of John Barragray, IMDb writes, Of the tall, dark, and handsome variety on 50s Broadway and in Hollywood, actor John Barragray found steady work on TV soaps and in guest spots, but found regrettably few film offers, and those he did find were for the most part highly unmemorable. Born in Haleyville, Alabama in 1919, he attended the University of Alabama and decided to make a go of it in acting, moving to New York for study. He toured the South Pacific with the USO play Petticoat Fever from 1943 to 1945 and met actress Louise Larrabee, whom he later married. He first appeared on Broadway in 1946 in A Flag is Born, 
and he later appeared in Broadway productions of Richard III, Elizabeth the Queen, and The Crucible. IMDb says it was television that gave Beragray wider recognition, and he appeared on practically every showcase series in the 1950s, including Studio One, U.S. Steel Hour, Campbell Soundstage, Motorola TV Hour, Omnibus, and Robert Montgomery Presents. Wikipedia says that yet today he is virtually forgotten, partly because so much of his work was in early television, and many of the tapes of these shows have been lost or were never even recorded. Of those shows, he was in three episodes of Lights Out, two episodes of Inner Sanctum, three episodes of Suspicion, two episodes of Thriller, and 11 episodes of Suspense, including the 1953 episode, The Dance. Got a loyal little supporter here, Charles. Looks like I need one. Yeah, looks like you do, son. Are you still sticking to your story about being in the locker room all the time? Oh, story, Sheriff. That's where I was. Sheriff, listen to me. I don't even have a gun. How could I have done it? Well, you didn't need to have a gun, son. Mine was right handy, and you knew it. I told you that earlier. Where did you hide it? Sheriff, I never even saw your gun. You gotta believe me. Sure, I was mad at Marie, but I, but I didn't kill her. But everybody else was downstairs watching the dance, son. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry as I can be. From 1962 to 1964, he appeared in the soap opera The Secret Storm. And in 1966, he was in three episodes of Dark Shadows as a shady lawyer. What have you got for me? Just about everything you asked for, Mr. Devlin. Good, good. I think that now we're in a position to start picking up the outstanding notes that are held by the bank. This will give me complete control of the Colin Canneries. Mr. Devlin, if you want to go further, I imagine you can gain control of any property that the Collins family has an interest in. I want to go further, Mr. Blair. Much further. Of his films, IMDb says that Bear Gray began promisingly working with an impressive variety of actors and actresses, including Rita Hayworth in The Loves of Carmen, Cornell Wilde in Shockproof, and in a lighter vein, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis in Partners. But by the time he hit the late 50s and 1960s, he was in less respected science fiction films such as The Colossus of New York. I don't understand. You know what that is? A human brain. Brilliant. And this? An electroencephalograph. And what does such a machine do? It records the electrical wavelengths of the brain. Brilliant and the Americanized version of Gamera, Gamera the Invincible. Hello, I am J.G. Standish, along with my guests, the noted zoologist, Dr. Emmerich Contraire, author of The Factual Basis of Legends, and on my right, this network's genial science editor, author of such books as Non-Science or Nonsense, Jules Manning. Our subject, the giant turtle Gamera, certainly one of the most controversial subjects of our time. Dr. Contraire, earlier in our program, you stated the belief that Gamera could, in fact, exist, while Mr. Manning disagreed rather vigorously. And I still do. This theory of Dr. Hadakas is pure science fiction, a figment of an unbridled imagination. Mr. Manning, any theory until proven appears unbelievable to the ignorant. Sadly, John Barragray died of a cerebral hemorrhage in 1975 the age of 57. According to his obituary in Variety, he had a brush with greatness in the early 1960s. 
At a patriotic ceremony on July 4, 1963, at which President John F. Kennedy was the principal speaker, Baragray read the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. When they were introduced during the preliminaries, the president told the actor, I'm one of your admiring fans. When I was hospitalized with a bad back, I used to watch you on television. John Baragray is in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. One for the Road, episode 23 of season 2. That leaves us with one person we have not discussed, Edgar Marvin, the author of the story on which the episode is based. I could find very little about Edgar Marvin. Fortunately, Jack Seabrook found more, and he says, Born in Brooklyn, Marvin won a McDowell Fellowship in 1951 and worked at the McDowell Colony, presumably honing his writing. He wrote scripts for radio and television from 1949 to 1956, and then changed careers to become an advertising copywriter and a creative director. A 1962 issue of Broadcasting reports that he won an award for an Autolite commercial. He later wrote a short book about movie star Norma Talmadge in 1978, but I have been unable to find any evidence that he ever wrote any short stories that were published. IMDb credits Marvin as writer on seven episodes of TV shows between 1949 and 1956, this being his last. So what were the others? Well, he had an episode of American Inventory, Armstrong Circle Theater, The Clock, the Lights Out episode The Crushed Rose, the Tales of Tomorrow episode The Exile, and the Suspense episode Portrait of Constance. Ah, now that's a familiar name. I wonder if it's a familiar story. Let's take a look at it. And now, suspense. We're reopening a case, Bert. It's the Manners case. Constance? Yes, I'm turning it over to you. They've got new evidence, Bert. She's been found? No, she hasn't been found. The police had a new lead a few weeks ago. Where? Uh, Dewey, a little resort down upstate. You used to go there with Constance. Once, yes. What was the lead? A fellow by the name of Clymer. Arthur Clymer, an artist. You know him? He was seen with a woman answering Miss Manor's description. So, yes, it's essentially the same story. Here's the conclusion. Why don't you tell me where she is? She's dead. How? How did she die? How does one die? That's an interesting question. Answer me. Some say when the breath leaves the body, there is death. But it is also said we live suspended in each other's minds, so, so perhaps there is no death. How? How did she die? I killed her. No, you didn't. You, you're out of your mind. No, no, not anymore. Maybe I was. Maybe I had reason. You've seen her face, to kiss that face, waking and sleeping. You know what that means to a man? To see her loveliness, walk with it and touch it and know it is not yours. To hear her say, I love no. you. To hear her say, I love you. No! But I could not win her. She belonged to no one. No one but herself. You know what that means? She's buried outside. I'll show you.
She's down there at the bottom of the cliff. I you killed it. You killed Constance. Yes, madam. We found the body at the bottom of the cliff a week ago. We knew we had done it, but we needed proof. You're the police? I'm a detective, ma'am. Your husband's agency cooperated with us. I'm sorry, Mrs. Hastings. I had to play it this way to get a confession. This is Edgar's only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Edgar Marvin died in 2005 at the age of 85. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that there is one film that, while lacking a portrait, still follows a very similar course to our episode, and that film is Conflict from 1945, starring Humphrey Bogart, Alexis Smith, and Sidney Greenstreet. Now, just comparing that film to this episode probably spoils the film, but I'm going to spoil it a little bit more. In the film, Humphrey Bogart plays Richard Mason, who falls in love with his wife's sister and then concocts an elaborate plan to murder his wife. So as opposed to Portrait of Jocelyn, where the twist is that Mark has murdered his wife, in conflict, we know from the beginning that Richard has murdered his wife. What we don't know, unless we're paying close attention, is that Sidney Greenstreet's character has been tipped off to it, but he has no proof. And so a bunch of bizarre circumstances take place that shake up Humphrey Bogart's character and make him wonder whether his wife may still be alive. You may remember a clip I played last episode when I was talking about actor John Harmon, who appears in conflict as a man who seems to have stolen a ring from a woman's purse. A ring that, as far as Humphrey Bogart's character knows, should be buried with her body. Here's that clip again. 
This lady wearing a hat. Yes, sir. What color was it? Was it green? I think so. Just a plain hat. Nothing on it. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah, there was one thing on it. What? A feather. Kind of a big feather. You're lying. You either kidnapped her or killed her. Well, don't just stand there staring at me. Do something. Make him tell where she is. Beat it out of him. Take him out. Come on. Let's go. Other strange occurrences take place. Other objects which should be buried appear. Come in. Yes, sir. Has anyone been in this room tonight? No one except myself, sir. Someone else has. Someone wearing Mrs. Mason's perfume. Can't you smell it? Yes, I think I can, sir. But I don't understand it unless Miss Evelyn... No, it couldn't have been Miss Evelyn. She's been out with me all evening. Give me police headquarters. I want to talk to Lieutenant Egan. This is Richard Mason. Hello, Egan. This is Mason. Somebody's been in my house tonight. No, nothing has been taken. Something has been added. Wedding ring my wife wore when she went away. Are you sure this is the identical handkerchief that she wore when she went away? Of course I'm sure, otherwise I wouldn't have brought it to you. I even asked her maid at the house. She says she distinctly remembers putting it in the pocket of my wife's suit. In fact, it was made for the suit. There's no other like it. Mr. Mason, I've come across a lot of screwy things in this business. But this beats them all. Now look, Egan, the ring, the key, and the handkerchief can mean one of two things. Either she was murdered and her body had been found, or she was kidnapped. Yes, gentlemen? We want to see the gold locket Mrs. Mason pawned. Gold locket? I think there must be some mistake, mister. I have no gold lockets. Nobody buys them anymore. The few I had left, I sold just for the gold. Oh, don't give me that. It was right here in this tray half an hour ago. You must have seen it in some other pawn shop, sir. Oh, it is right here in this pawn shop. Let's see that locket. Honestly, gentlemen, I haven't had any gold lockets in here for more than a year. Where's your partner? I have no partner. All right, your clerk, your helper, the big fella. He's making a mistake, Mr. Detective. I have no partner or help of any kind. This is my shop. I run it myself. You sure this is the right place? I'm absolutely positive. I remember those clocks, the guitar, the whole place. It was right here in this case, number 22787. Have you got the ticket? Yes. Well, no, he kept it, the big fella. Believe me, Mr. Detective. Hand me that ledger. Yes, sir. Anything you say. Show it to you right there in the book in her own handwriting. C22787. You've switched books. You've hidden the locket. Where is it? Hey, get a hold of yourself. It won't do any good. Come on, let's get out of here. It's all an elaborate plot to make Richard crack and give himself away, just as it's an elaborate plot in Portrait of Jocelyn to get Mark to crack and give himself away. So let's look at that elaborate plot. In order for it to work, who all has to be involved? Well, the police, of course. So that's Arthur Clymer, otherwise known as Detective Iverson. But it probably has to involve the police in New York and the police in Shell Harbor. Jeff is in on it, Mr. Harrison at the art gallery, Maybe the gallery employee, but he doesn't necessarily have to be involved in it. The real estate agent up at Shell Harbor, whoever did the painting, 
whoever did the sculpture. But beyond that, if Iverson isn't doing everything, you need somebody to put the vase of flowers in the cottage. You need somebody to put the coat and scarf in the cottage. You need to arrange that it's the only cottage available. So it's a big, elaborate production, just on the off chance that it might make Mark crack. And not only that, you have to know that Mark bought a painting. Remember what he says at the beginning of the episode? Now, wait a minute. I was in this morning. I spoke to Mr. Harrison about a painting, made a payment on it. He spoke to Mr. Harrison this morning. So that means that the police have to already have in motion the finished portrait of Jocelyn. They have to have some deal with Mr. Harrison. They have to know that Mark is going to go see Mr. Harrison and actually buy a painting. But once Mark has that painting, they have to rely on the fact that he'll bring it to Jeff, which allows Jeff to point out the artist's signature and the date and to then later call and say that he's learned that the artist lives in Shell Harbor, providing that little nudge that he hopes will make Mark go up to Shell Harbor. And then you need the real estate agent in on it so that he points him to the one cottage. You need the sculpture already created and stashed underneath one of the sheets. They have to have access to Jocelyn's favorite flower so that they can put them in fresh. This has to be done before Mark and Debbie show up, even though no one knows that Mark and Debbie are showing up that night. Remember, when Jeff suggests they go up there, Mark doesn't give a definitive answer. Think we should go up there and look around? I'll let you know. Thanks, Jeff. It's all pretty unlikely. Jack Seabrook says the plot itself depends on anticipating Mark's behavior, and his obsession with his first wife can only be explained by a desire to keep the truth from Debbie. All along, Mark knows that Jocelyn is dead and that he killed her. Yet were he to fail to react appropriately to the sudden appearance of her portrait, her bust, and her clothes, he might arouse suspicion. Detective Iverson's plan, carried out with the knowledge and assistance of Jeff, and perhaps to some extent the men at the art gallery and the real estate office, is a complex one that only has a slim chance of success, but the psychological pressure that is exerted on Mark succeeds in eliciting the truth. So really, none of this should work. Mark should recognize the painting as some sort of scheme. He should recognize Jeff's comments of getting a letter as a lie, because he knows she's dead. But the scheme successfully plays on two emotions Mark has. One is his obsession with Jocelyn, his urge to repossess her, because, unlike Richard in conflict, he's killed her because she wants to be with another man, not because he wants to be with another woman. And then the scheme plays on Mark's fear that what Jeff says is true. She doesn't love you, Mark. She never did. Which is why Jeff says it. Jack also compares Harold Swanton's first three teleplays and says, In Premonition, a man investigates his father's death only to learn that he is responsible. He has been in a hospital, yet takes on the guise of a musician who has been studying abroad. In the long shot, one man kills another and steals his identity, hoping to collect an inheritance, only to discover that the man he killed was also an imposter and a murderer. In Portrait of Jocelyn, a policeman impersonates an artist in order to force a confession out of a man who murdered his wife. Swanton's first three teleplays for Alfred Hitchcock Presents succeed in keeping the various false identities hidden until the climax, when the truth is revealed and the killers stand unmasked. So, in all this confusion of false identities, who is the protagonist? The episode thinks it's Mark, but we find out at the end that all of Mark's emotions, except for his foreboding, are false. So I think it's Debbie. Remember that everyone in this episode is acting, 
except for Debbie and the possible exception of the gallery employee. Since Debbie is the only one who isn't acting, she's the only one who can really grow and develop. And you can say, wait a minute, Mark isn't in on the scheme, but we now know that he's been acting for five years, and that his concern about Jocelyn, his curiosity as to what has happened to her, his hope that he will find her are all manufactured. Even his love for Debbie seems to be more a cover than a true emotion. As he says at the end, She was right. I never should have married her. There never could be anybody like Jocelyn. So he starts with a weakness, his obsession with Jocelyn. And he ends with that weakness. He ends the episode with that weakness. But what about Debbie? She has a true emotional arc rather than a fabricated one. She starts subservient. Oh, please. It's our anniversary. And struggles with her feelings of inferiority as compared to her husband's first wife. There's no reason to hide it behind the sofa. She's been looking over my shoulders. Debbie, please. I can do without hysterics. If that's what it is, I can't help it. She's been in the house with us ever since our marriage. She's in your mind when you kiss her. Stop it! But by the end, she is the stronger character, the one that insists Mark face Arthur Clymer and Jocelyn. As I said, Mark's last line reveals weakness. Debbie's last line... That's the first cowardly thing I've ever seen you do. ...expresses strength. It would be interesting to see how Debbie reacts to the news that Mark is a murderer who has been deceiving her all along. But unfortunately, since the episode thinks Mark is the protagonist, we never get to see it. Now, you may recall that in our previous podcast, I said, In Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, Patrick McGilligan writes, Hitch claimed two entries in the December 1920 Telegraph. If the first seems a precursor of Abbott and Costello's Who's on First shtick, the second is every bit as frivolous. I read the first story, What's Who, last time. Here's the second one. Prepare yourself. The History of Pea-Eating Modern science, with its far-reaching effects on the life of the community, has yet one more problem to solve to further the progress of the world that of eating peas. Considerable speculation has been given to the methods employed in the early ages, and we read of the prehistoric man who simply buried his face in the plate of peas and performed practically an illusion by his act of demolishing the vegetables without the use of his hands. One must admit, however, that this method may be described as crude, for one can hardly imagine the modern corpulent gentleman attempting the same feat because of the danger of his excessive adiposity reaching the floor before his face reached the plate. We are told that Sir Roger Darcy in the early Middle Ages found no great difficulty in the problem. All he did was to attach to the headpiece of his armor a double piece of elastic in the form of a catapult. He simply placed a pea between the piece of leather attached to the elastic and aimed toward his open mouth. But even this method brought inconvenience, for it was soon discovered that there were many gentlemen with a bad aim, and often a duel resulted from the fact that Sir Percy had badly stung the wife of Baron Edgar over the other side of the room. It is believed that an act was instituted prohibiting the use of this method without a license, and one had to pass a test to secure the necessary permission to adopt this very ingenious style of feeding. These restrictions were responsible for the falling off in the popularity of peas, and after a time they were practically non-existent as an edible vegetable. Many years later, however, the revival brought a great interest to the now-famous pea-eating contests, the details of which reveal a further method of manipulation. 
It appears that each competitor was required to balance a certain number of peas along the edge of a sword, from which he was to swallow the peas without spilling any. Of course, in very exciting matches, the contestants' mouths and faces were often cut. It is believed that the performance of sword swallowing was evolved from this feat, and that very large-mouthed people of today are direct descendants from the champions of that period. As is well known, many estimable people still practice this method on a smaller scale. Still further styles of deglutition were tried in late years, and the modern boy's pea shooter recalls the employment of pages to shoot the peas in my lord's mouth. Bad aim, of course, was reflected with dire results to the page. We have yet to discover a really useful and satisfactory method of pea eating. A recent inventor evolved a process by which a pipe was placed in the mouth and the peas drawn up by pneumatic means. But in the trials, the inventor unfortunately turned on the power in the reverse direction, with the result that the victim's tongue is now much longer than hitherto. Another person suggested that they might be electrically deposited, but the idea of the scheme was so shocking that it was not considered. One of the most sensible ways, which is at present in the experimental stages, is receiving the attention of a well-known market gardener who is endeavoring to grow square peas so as to eliminate the embarrassing habit which peas have of rolling off the cutlery. It is to be hoped that the experiment will prove successful. In order to help on this very important scientific development, suggested methods from our readers will be welcomed and forwarded to the proper authority. Please direct any suggestions to the manager, the Henley Telegraph. Let's move on to another film for which Hitchcock was title designer. This one, entitled Dangerous Lies, was based on Twice Wed by E. Phillips Oppenheim. It starred David Powell, and it was directed by Paul Powell. There doesn't seem to be any relation. Wikipedia has an entry in which it says, as described in a film magazine, Joan, a poor rector's daughter, marries a bounder, and after she discovers his true character, leaves him to make her way in London. She meets and falls in love with Sir Henry Bond, played by David Powell, a wealthy collector of antique books, and marries him after reading of her husband's sudden death. Later, it is discovered that her husband was not dead and that he had the notice printed to throw creditors off his trail. Joan goes to his hotel room and a struggle ensues in which her husband falls dead from a heart attack, leaving her free for happiness with her book connoisseur. This sounds very much like the plot to The Great Day, which we dealt with before. And you start to get the feeling that a lot of these early silent films were essentially the same film filmed over and over and over again. This is from the September 1922 issue of Picture Goer. They had practically a whole house erected for Dangerous Lies at famous Lasky's Islington Studio, library, bedroom, hall with staircase, and even an attic were all standing next door to one another on the two big floors there. On the day the elopement scenes were shot, Paul Powell needed a tabby cat for a scene or two, and the black specimen that still haunts the studio seemed to resent the presence of the intruder very much. To prevent a fight, Paul Powell held her whilst the other was on the set, but professional jealousy, or temperament, if pussies suffer from temperament, caused by two retakes of the tabby, resulted in a vicious attack on the part of the black beauty. Whilst trying to calm her, Paul Powell had his face rather badly scratched. With the proverbial patience of the producer, he took it as part of the day's work and didn't even call the offender anything more lurid than a naughty pet. This, like all the others before it, is a lost film. Time to wrap up, and here's Hitch. And so Mark Halliday finally found the bluebird of happiness. It had been there all the time. 
in any theatrical presentation, the next to closing spot is deemed the most advantageous. That explains the placement of this number in tonight's variety show. Alfred Hitchcock presents season one, Laura, Rebecca, Conflict, Sweet Bird of Youth, The Twilight Zone season two, and The Outer Limits season one are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The 1995 Spider-Man animated series, Alice in Wonderland, A Lesson in Appreciating Differences, Pinocchio, A Lesson in Honesty, the suspense TV episode The Dance, the suspense TV episode Portrait of Constance, the suspense radio episode Portrait Without a Face, The Colossus of New York, and Gamera the Invincible are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 29, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby, starring Robert H. Harris and Meg Mundy. Bravo, bravo. That was a real showstopper in every sense of the word. Now I see there is just time enough for me to wish you pleasant dreams and a happy analysis. Good night. <laughs>